So a Google search of the Good Samaritan story returned 1.1 million hits in uh, less than half a second. So no doubt it is one of the most familiar stories in all the Bible. So I was thinking because it's so familiar, any sermon that I might preach, I could look out into you and see your eyes glaze over and you'd start to hear that wah, 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 wah of Charlie Brown's teacher in your ears. You'd start making your grocery list after church, for after church in your head or scrolling through your phone for the after church lunch options. So what I'd like to do this morning is lay alongside the Good Samaritan story a couple of other stories so that we can do a deeper dive into what Moses says to God's chosen people. The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. The word for you today to observe is grace. And the observation is the activity of God's grace as it has been at work among you, Greenfielders. And these won't be just any stories. They're true stories. And for the most part, they're stories that I can't wait to tell on you. <laughs> but first, a little theology, because you all contributed very generously to my seminary education. I should probably demonstrate that I learned a thing or two about the ways of God and humanity. So grace. Grace is what God does. Grace is God's verb because God is gracious. God is, it is the activity of God towards us. God creates each one of us in all of our uniqueness. God is with us, a.k.a. the name of Jesus, God with us. The Holy Spirit, God equips us as followers of Jesus uh, the Spirit gifts us with what we need to carry out God's plan of liberating freedom from the forces that spread the false narrative about life, that it's about the three C's of control, consumption, and competition for limited resources. Moses says, the word of God is not far away from you. You don't have to take an Uber to heaven to understand it. You don't have to kayak across the Detroit River to Canada to find it. You only have to look inside yourselves. That's where the grace word of God resides. And that tells me that one of the primary activi activities of God's word is that God is always looking for a body a group of people who will show the world what God is like, who will carry God's name and fundamentally different message than the three C's message, carry God's message out into the world. Because we can talk about freedom. We can talk about love. We can talk about justice. But these are just ideas until they take on flesh and blood, until they come, become enfleshed. So here we are at this encounter on Moab with everyone present, renewing their covenant with God as they're about to cross over into that promised land. And they are going to put these ideas about liberation and equality and justice 
and compassion and solidarity. And they're being invited by Moses to take on flesh and blood and be a part of God's plan for humanity because by God's grace, they will show the world a different way of being human. So here's the first grace in a body story. It's one that my friend and mentor Janie Sparr tells, and if you know her, she sends her love, and she's doing fabulously, as she would say. She's happy as an extrovert to be able to get out again. Um, and so uh, she tells this story about her friend John, who's a long-haul truck driver from Philadelphia. And because John was gay and slight of build, he would show, he didn't want to show himself very much. So when he would pull his truck into a truck stop, he would just go out and go in and get his food and come right back and sleep in his truck. And he was really frightened that he might be hurt, so he'd just stay in his truck. But one time he drove out to Kansas City and he decided that he wanted to go to a gay bar. So he parked his truck very far away so that his truck wouldn't get hurt, let alone himself. So he was there hanging out, being himself in the gay bar, which was our place to go and be safe for all those years. Then at around 1 o'clock in the morning, he came out of the bar and he saw an alleyway and he thought, oh, there's a shortcut to go back to my truck. So he starts down this alley and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, two men jump him and they start beating on him so much so that he thought he was going to die. And they called him a fag, you know, and all those other names. And they kept beating him and kicking him. And then all of a sudden he hears this. Tick, 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 tick. And suddenly the two men are thrown off then. They hit a wall and they run away. And as John is laying on the ground, he looks up from the ground with like one eye that he's got left open, you know, and he's... He said, it started with the high heels, and then it went up to the gold lame dress, and then those Tammy Faye Baker fake eyelashes, and then that huge blonde wig. And all John could say was, who are you? <laughs> and as true as anything, this drag queen leaned down and said in this wonderfully deep voice, sweetheart. My name is Amazing Grace. <laughs> so this drag queen, Amazing Grace, picks John up and carries him back to his truck. She bandaged, he bandaged him, she, he bandaged him up, helped him. Said, he said, I, I don't think you're badly bruised, but I'll take you to the hospital if that's where you want to go. But they stayed there in his truck, and, and Amazing Grace helped him. And after he recovered, John said, what can I do for you, Amazing Grace, for saving my life? And Amazing Grace said, sweetie, you can take me for a ride in that big truck of yours. And after this, John was not so shy anymore. He was not afraid to be himself. He decided to go into these truck stops and he would pull on his horn and honk his horn and yell, I'm a gay truck driver. 
And the other truck drivers are kind of, you know, stunned by this frail little guy with all this power now coming out of him, that they loved him back. And so an amazing grace story for the Good Samaritan story. As Moses says, the word is not very far from us. So my question to you all this morning is, who has ever picked you up off the ground? Who has ever saved your life? Who has touched you in such a way that you finally wanted to be yourself? Who has been God's amazing grace in the flesh in your life? As I said earlier this morning, I wanted this to be a love fest because Greenfield I would tick all those boxes and I would answer yes to you all for all those questions. So I'd like to share a few of those true stories about how this congregation embraced this intern 20 years ago and has continued to do so. Not that I want to talk about myself, but I really want you to come to realize your part in this great story of being amazing grace for me and for so many others who were a part of the larger story of what was happening in the Presbyterian Church at that time. And since this is the last weekend of LGBTQ plus Pride Month, it's great to be able to share these stories with you so that we can all realize how far we've come in the transformation of the Presbyterian Church that's happened because of your participation in God's activity of grace combined with justice and solidarity. So in case you don't have the Book of Order memorized or you just need a little refresher, let me jog your memory. In 1996, something called Amendment B was voted into the Book of Order that basically said the ordination of ministers and in the local church, elders and deacons, was only for those who were one man married to one woman or... Um, it was kind of this subversive text to really be aimed at queer people that if you were a, a non-practicing homosexual, like we needed to practice, um, if you were celibate, then you could serve. It was so hurtful, so unjust, that to think an otherwise qualified, Jesus-loving, church-going person could not be called into ministry just because of their sexual orientation. Although when it came time to pass the offering plate, the Presbyterian Church didn't have any rules about that. They'll take the LGBTQ people's money, that's for sure. But the law was the law, and since in the Presbyterian Church, any person in any part of the country can bring a lawsuit against any other person or any other church. So it was a very scary time because ministers and sessions and uh, Presbyteries, committees on ministry, seminarians. The Presbyterian, the Presbytery could come in and remove the pastor, shut down the session, and shut down the church altogether. And so also in 1996, it was the year that I uh, came out to um, everyone in my family and uh, my church and everywhere about my sexual orientation as a lesbian. 
and it was the year at the same time that I voiced a call to um, serve the church as a minister and to go to seminary. Well, of course, my timing couldn't have been worse. And although everybody in my life was like, hey, we've been waiting for you, the church was the only one or the only place where I was not accepted. So I left the church for a while, and then, but I still started seminary at the Ecumenical Theological Seminary in Detroit. And then eventually I came back and joined a more light church in Northside Presbyterian Church in Ann Arbor and came under care of the Committee on Preparation for Ministry. Um, but because I was the first and only openly queer candidate, they didn't know quite exactly what to do with me. And I think at most of our meetings, they were just wanting to ride it out and hope that the law would change soon. But by 2001, the law had not changed, and I was ready to do my nine-month internship. And obviously, no church would take me on, as they didn't want to risk a lawsuit the one where they could come in and take away the pastor and the session and the church. So the committee was trying to figure out how I could do my internship. Could I do it at Northside? My home church, was, which is never done, because they had a specialized ministry to LGBTQ people. And I just kind of felt like this ping pong ball where the rules could shift um, based on what the people in power needed to stay in power. And then at a Tuesday night presbytery meeting, this guy, not in high heels and a gold lame dress, <laughs> but in a goateeish kind of beard and a big, the warmest smile that you've ever seen, that smile that tells you everything's going to be okay, even when it's not, it's going to be okay. He turned to me and he said something like, I'll take you on, call me. And that guy was, of course, the Reverend Peter Moore. And he was serious when we talked, and he followed through doing the readings and the coursework at ETS for how he could be an internship supervisor. At our first meeting, the first thing he said to me was, you're not just going to be a youth pastor where they just stick the intern with the youth. So I went to finance and stewardship meetings. I took part in both worship services. I went to weddings and funerals with him and to the hospital visiting the sick and the dying. And on it went. He formed a committee of care to work with the Committee on Preparation for Ministry, and I think Debbie, you were the head of that. He wanted me to be grounded in Reformed and therefore Presbyterian theology, so over early morning breakfasts and lunches, he squeezed into his already packed schedule as he was ministering this congregation and growing this congregation so much. He taught me theology using Shirley Guthrie's Christian doctrine. And I was able to go to Dr. Guthrie in person and tell him that story because he actually became my theology professor when I went to Columbia Theological Seminary. And of course, there was all of you, God's grace in the flesh, welcoming this queer person into your midst Sunday to Sunday. I could count on Lorraine being behind the window in the kitchen. Handy, ready with my coffee. She knew I like my coffee mixed with hot chocolate, and she just had it there at that early hour of 7.30 a.m. when that enthusiastic and energetic morning person, Peter, insisted that we be here to prepare for worship. You all, some of you know what that's like. 
So now even though Peter carefully and meticulously taught me how to line out each part of the worship service, carefully counting the time for each part of the liturgy, I, I know I'm probably over time already, but I just want to tell you a few more of my Good Samaritan memories. Um, on the last Sunday of my internship, y'all, as you always do and are going to do for Cindy, threw a big party. I don't know if you're going to see this. You know, Janie was here, and um, you gave me this robe. It's Sandy Walker made it, a robe for women that had deep pockets in it, so I didn't have to borrow Peter's extra robe from seminary anymore, so you know how old that was. And, and, and you had her make me this white stole. And even though that served me well um, for weddings and baptisms and on Easter morning, I just tell Diane that I was telling a story on her. She gave me a stole and she said, here, you may need a stole for funerals. And it was black, but not like death black, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it was black, but it had, uh, has, has uh, gold um, uh, butterflies and, and other gold kind of squiggly things through it. And Diane, that has served me well through many memorial services and funerals. And, you know, who would think of that? Of course, y'all would. <laughs> and then um, I think that um, somebody came up. They were in Atlanta where I was going to school. And, and maybe it was you, Bob, and gave me these MARTA tokens to use while I was down there. And... Um, and there was just like so many cards and gifts and everything else. Um, it just really is incredible. And so another story I just wanted to tell was about the fierce older women of um, the Deborah Circle who took me under their wing and were just so totally on board with this was like a justice issue and the work of that all me freely serve Michigan and removing Amendment B from the Book of Order. While I was in seminary, they would send me cards every month and every now and then a care package, which was like you were super cool if you got called down to your mailbox to get a care package. <laughs> and so I'll just read you this um, because, well, you'll fill it in. Dear Susan, it's that time again, hot fudge Sunday time. Mm. Enjoy with all your friends and hope it's enough to go around. Hope things are going well for you and study hard. The $10 that was in this card along within the package was an ice cream scoop. Is for ice cream. Have fun and love the Deborah Circle. Pretty amazing. And then in 2004, I'll just tell this last story and I'll try to make it short, but um, uh, I became a member of the congregation after I left in 2002 to go to seminary. Um, and I remember uh, my senior year, I had to come back here for um, my uh, examination on the floor of presbytery to become a candidate ready to circulate my profile, even though I couldn't circulate my profile and no church could call me. But anyway, we had to go through that. So I flew back from Atlanta, and Peter said, you know, there's so many people from Greenfield who want to come and be at the Presbytery meeting. It was on a Saturday. I think we have to hire one or two buses or something like that. I don't know if that ended up happening, but there was this Saturday uh, Presbytery meeting, but it was also February 14th, Valentine's Day. And there were four other candidates, um, heterosexual candidates, and they all went before me, 
because as somebody told me afterwards, um, at the orientation for people who are new to Presbytery, somebody had said, you picked a great day because we're going to ordain a homosexual today, which was not even, you know, true, but I was the main attraction. So the four went, is there any, que any questions for them? Nope, not even a question. From all these, you know, hundreds of people at the Presbytery, no questions. I get up there, and uh, the first question that somebody asks is, Susan, can you tell us your theology, you know, in four minutes or less? Well, you're not allowed to do that. It's, it's, um, it's known that you um, are questioned by your committee and that the only thing that's supposed to happen at this presbytery meeting is that they talk to you about your personal call to ministry. But the moderator of the presbytery meeting said, oh, well, no, our candidates are so well-educated, we think that we'll, we'll allow the question. And I think Peter got up and he objected and he was, you know, overruled. And so I had to answer in four minutes what was my theology all about. And I started to get this really bad feeling in my stomach that this was going south. And so then another person got up who said that she was not going to speak in this meeting. Um, she was somebody who did not believe in ordination for us, but she did. And she said, um, I just want to know that the Committee on Preparation for Ministry has um, told Susan that any time she has a date, she has to report in to all of you. And so the moderator of the Committee on Ministry got up and said, oh, yes, Susan has been told that she will report every time she has a date. And to which I got up then and I said, you know, I'm not currently dating anybody, but it's Valentine's Day, so if you have any phone numbers, if you would pass them forward, I, I would be glad to be in touch with somebody. <laughs> and then I said, you know, what constitutes a date? I mean, that's not in the book of order. Let's, let's drill this down. Is it when I first talk to a woman? Is it when we first hold hands? Is it when I have them over for dinner? Is it when I kiss them? And then they went, ah, you know, no, no, we're not getting any further than that, you know. Ah, cut me off right there. Um, so then, um, there was no other question or no other question. So I, they take us all out of the room while they vote on us. And I c was in that other room and I just broke down crying. And, um, I could hear a, a man, a, a minister who, uh, was not for ordination. And he got up and he said, you know, I am here and I'm, I'm for the ordination of Susan Thomas. And I could hear that. And then they bring us back up, and what I remember is everybody came to their feet, you know, and they started clapping, and there was this standing ovation. And here's where I say, and I totally believe, it was not about me. It was about you all saying, we are not going to put up with this treatment of p God's children, where it's so unequal like this. These questions would never be asked of a homosexual, of a heterosexual. And so I think people were just making a proclamation with their bodies and saying no to this. So what happens afterwards is that you stand up front and everybody, you know, people who support you, your family, some people from church get to come up and congratulate you. Well, the other four candidates had maybe three or four people, but Greenfield had a couple hundred people. And so it was this long line going down the center aisle and, you know, I'm, they're saying congrats, and, and people in canes, people in walkers. And so the moderator of the presbytery got up and said, well, you know, we have to get on with the business of presbytery trying to shut it down. 
And we were like, no, uh-uh. Everybody's going to, you wanted this. Everybody's going to have their chance to show, you know, what we are about here at Griefville. And that's the love of God for all God's children. Amen. So um, a few weeks later, uh, Bonnie Sweatman, who's another fierce advocate for justice, um, was the administrative assistant at the time. And she emailed me a letter um, from Greenfield, I think it was coming from the session to the stated clerk of Presbytery, detailing your objection to the way I was treated. And I was truly astounded that a church would go out on a limb and risk so much by pushing it back against the powers of control. And then sometime later, I received a letter from the clerk not with an apology so much as citing good lawyer uh, language, chapter and verse, not from the Bible, but from the book of order as to why the examination was allowed to happen the way it happened. And then he closed with these words. I think you, Ms. Thomas, with your charismatic charm, will be the one to change the church. To which I said, no. What changed the church was God's grace in a body People like you, Greenfield Presbyterian Church. People who, when God went looking for a body, accepted the mantle of grace and solidarity and justice. So that I think what happened over time was that you showed the presbytery and you showed your neighbors that queer folks and straight folks, SBNNs as we called you, straight but not narrow, could worship together and do so many things, ministries of the church together. Many people during my time here came out about their sexual orientation. Many queer people came to Greenfield because they heard that this was a safe church. Many straight people came out and said, you know, hey, I have a gay child or relative, and that serving the church should be for anybody who is called by God to serve in these ministries, regardless of their background. And so as Moses says, the word is very near to you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. So Greenfielders of today, what you need to know is that this was not just a one-time outpouring of the spirit, getting involved to remove this discriminatory law from the Presbyterian church, but it's a way of your heart as Jesus followers here at Greenfield Presbyterian Church. So strap on those high heels, dust off that gold made dress, buy some new red lipstick, apply those Tammy Faye Baker eyelashes, and let's continue to come out as God's amazing grace, the body of Christ for um, everyone, for genuine love and solidarity, um, because Jesus says, do this and you will live. Amen. <laughs>